Well, like uh, Pastor said, I'm John Schweider, uh, but what he didn't tell you is I live in South Suburban Chicago, where it is so cold right now, the politicians have their hands in their own pockets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 9,000 people a month from Illinois coming down here, right. Uh, the organization I serve is called For the Children, and all we do right now is we, uh, we, we offer churches two programs, Royal Family Kids Camps and Mentoring. But we've been doing this for so long, and we found out that stuff like you just saw in that video is happening all over the country, where people will come to camp, they'll meet some children, they'll, their eyes are open to the possibility of them becoming foster parents or doing respite care. Or, or any one of a hundred things, ways to get involved in, uh, in children's lives. And so what we did is we created the organization to be more intentional about the things that are just happening organically. And so we'll see how that goes as time goes on. Uh, faith-based orphan care is, is all about purpose. Everyone is born for purpose. Everyone that is on the planet right now has a purpose for their life. They are gifted, we are all gifted to fill a certain place on the earth. Now, people who believe in a materialist world uh, don't really get this purpose thing. And then there's children who grow up with uh, abuse, abandonment, neglect, uh, family childhood trauma, and they think their lives don't matter at all. But there's something written on our hearts, isn't there, a love for the orphan? Uh, there's even, even people that don't embrace the Judeo-Christian ethic get involved in social work and humanitarian efforts to help homeless children. However, for the believer, for us, this is missional. And it goes way back to when uh, Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphans and the widow. He shows his love for the stranger by giving him food and clothing. So show your love to the stranger. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, a lot of provisions are made throughout the Deuteronomic law uh, for, for orphans. And as far as I can tell, in the ancient Near East... The Hebrews were alone in that. There's a lot of ancient texts, and one of the ancient texts is called the Code of Hammurabi. And in the Code of Hammurabi, it does mention children as it relates to inheritance, but no provisions for children who are alone. But in a sense, that's not really surprising because the, uh, the pantheon of Mesopotamian gods were all, they're always mad, you know, they're always angry with humans and they're always punishing humans, uh, very, very violent. Um, but, and, and what a contrast that was. You, you read the old creation stories, and then you read the creation poem of Genesis. And with every act of creation, you see that punctuation, and it is good. No one discards anything that's good. And this, this thought of, uh, of, of gifted orphans, that it, it permeates fiction, doesn't it? I mean, look, Superman, Batman, the X-Men, they're all orphans gifted for purpose. And that's not anything new. We didn't invent that, okay? All the way back, 18th century B.C., there's a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the hero of the Epic of Gilgamesh is Enkidu, an orphan, gifted for purpose. 
Well, there's a name that hasn't come back yet, Enkidu. These are my sons, Josh, Joe, and Enkidu. Yeah. <laughs> Around that same time of that writing, God is putting together a nation. The family that he's starting with are these 12 brothers that are cantankerous, murderous uh, kids that can't even manage family conflict. And this is what he's starting with to create a nation. Interesting, interesting that he would equip one of those brothers who was forced into slavery. God's hope for his chosen people was this slave named Joseph, abused, abandoned, sold to human traffickers, incarcerated, yet gifted. The story of Joseph is found in uh, Genesis 37 through 50, and it begins when he's probably about 17 years old, and he's the second youngest of 11 11 brothers. He was the eyes and ears of his father, Jacob. So when the brothers went out to tend the flocks, Joseph was the liaison to uh, go back and forth and report back to his father all the terrible things his brothers were doing. They hated Joseph. They hated him so much, the Bible says they could not say a civil word about him or to him. And of course, it didn't help that he was daddy's favorite, right? You, anybody in big families? You get it, right? Joseph had two dreams. He reported them to his family. One, the 11 stalks of grain were bowing down to his. The other one, the sun, moon, and stars were bowing down to him. And, uh, and that didn't go real well. The, the hatred grew, and the brothers decided to do something about it. So the next time Joseph came out to check on his brothers, what did they say? Here comes the dreamer. And they decided to kill him. You know the story. Instead of ending his life, they sold him as a slave to some passing merchants. They were headed to Egypt. And then he dipped his cloak in blood, that coat of many colors that was so famous, and brought it back to his dad, assuming that he had been killed by a wild animal. Well, Joseph's story goes from bad to worse. It recounts years of of terrible times, incarcerated for a crime he didn't commit, and it was one unfair difficulty after another. No hope in sight. But Joseph was gifted. He was gifted by Yahweh to interpret dreams. And of course, Pharaoh needed a dream interpreted, and Joseph did it. He talked about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh said, well, you're the guy, you're my new governor. So he brought Joseph into a position of power where they stored grain for seven years, and then the next seven years they became a world power as one country after another came to buy grain. One of those uh, families was, of course, Joseph's brothers. And when they came to buy grain, they hadn't recognized this kid. They haven't seen him since he was 17, and now he's a man with a wife and kids and probably dressed in Egyptian's finest. So this whole family moved to Egypt, all 70 of them, and the story of Genesis ends. But but think about that. Joseph, removed from his home through abuse, abandonment, and neglect, and through that difficulty, he learned how to lead. And through this miracle, his family was preserved, and a nation began, because over the next 400 years, this family of 70 grew to an estimated one. 1.3 million people. And then we read in uh, the next next phase of this after Genesis that a a pharaoh came up to power who didn't know Joseph. Well, whether he didn't know Joseph or 
was afraid of this 1.3 million people that had the power to overthrow his government, he crushed them. He made sure that that, that people were, were never going to rise to power because it did happen once. Uh, a group of people called the Hiskos, they, they overthrew the Egyptian government and they ruled for 150 years. Well, this pharaoh knew about that and he wasn't going to let that happen again. And so the punishment began. And then he gave that terrible order that every Hebrew baby boy be slaughtered. I, I, I can't imagine that. One escapes. Put into a basket, floated down the river, where he is picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh, his new foster home. She fosters him, she adopts him. He learns to read, he learns to write, he learns to record history in his foster home. In this home, he gains the skills that he's going to need to become the leader of a nation. But more than that, the Egyptians were famous for writing things down. Moses learned the value of writing things down. Up to this point, the Hebrews were nomads. They went from being nomads to, to Bedouins to, to slaves. They didn't have to write anything down. They passed everything down through oral tradition. It was Moses who wrote the story. It was Moses who wrote Genesis and, and Exodus, who recorded the Ten Commandments for us, who wrote the Levitical Law and the 40-year journey through the desert. We have the first five books of the Bible. We have the Torah because Moses grew up in a foster home. Generations impacted by these, by these two. One saved a family from extinction by moving to Egypt. The second saved a nation from, from uh, extinction by moving out of Egypt. And you and I, 3,000 years later, are impacted from these two men. So let's fast forward a couple thousand years. As the Testaments begin to turn and the Romans were uh, in charge of, uh, of, of the, the time when the Testaments turned, one of the practices of Roman fathers was if they didn't want their child, a baby that was just born, they had the right to expose it to the elements. So they would, he would just take the baby out for whatever reason he wanted, and he would leave it out to die. Well, in the Jewish tradition, the early church would care for these abandoned infants. They would take them in, and they would raise them. James puts it this way, pure, unspoiled religion in the eyes of God our Father is this, coming to the help of orphans and widows in their hardships coming to the help of orphans and widows in their hardships and keeping oneself uncontaminated by the world. That practice continued through the church age. Now let's fast forward a couple thousand more years. Uh, when the United States was just beginning that westward move, a lot of the native tribes also practiced this, uh, this practice of exposure. Uh, John and uh, Narcissa Whitman in 1835 became medical missionaries to the Cayuse uh, tribe in, uh, in the Oregon Territories. And when they would leave the infants out, uh, Marcus and Narcissa would go pick the babies up and bring them in. Uh, at one time, they were raising 14 children that were not their own. Now, as far as I can tell, it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution began that the sheer numbers of, of abandoned children exceeded the church's capacity to care for the orphan. In 19th century, Charles Dickens, and I was, uh, I was told by uh, someone I misspelled Dickens' name. It's right here, though. I got it correct here. 
Charles Dickens was saddened and grieved by the horrible conditions of children working in sweatshops for pennies a day. He did not have any power to affect social change, but he could write. And he wrote that story, A Christmas Carol, where all those unattended orphans were, uh, were, 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 were part of, of the story, so that when that story began to get told over and over again, reforms began to take place for the children of his day. Around that same time in 19th century America, a guy by the name of Charles Loring Brace uh, who was uh, just about to graduate Yale, and he was going to enter the burgeoning world of biz- business until God called him to be a missionary. God called him to be a missionary to the homeless and the destitute of New York City. Now get this. As immigrants poured into the city, there were 10,000 children on the streets of New York. 10,000 kids, parentless. A lot of immigrants died on the way over on the boat, and these kids embarked uh, off, off that boat alone. There were no social service agencies at that time. So orphanages were established, but they were nowhere near enough to manage the abandoned children that just kept pouring in. New York's neighbors were not doing much better. Boston had 500 children in jail, boys between the ages of 7 to 18 incarcerated for such crimes as selling, license, or selling newspapers without a license, housed with grown men. Charles Loring Brace developed a plan to place these orphan children in rural America, and he started a ministry called Orphan Trains. They brought these children westward, not to be indentured servants, but to become sons and daughters as, as, they, as they moved west. By the time they ended the orphan trains in 1930, 200,000 children had been placed in families. One person, one person called by God can make a huge difference. I want to tell you the story of Becky. Uh, Becky came to our camp in uh, 1997, and she came from a group home. She's pretty young to be in a group home, but she had been through 11 placements, and when she came into the group home, that's just kind of where she settled. And when she came out to camp her first year, one of her positive memories was people did what they said. She had never met people that did what they said before. And she explained it to me when she was older. It's kind of like this. Um, we're how, we'd have a planned uh, trip to Great America. Somebody would mess up, and they'd say, okay, nobody's going. And so Becky learned, in order to not be disappointed, don't believe any adults. But as she got to know us, and we got to know her, and she came to camp year after year for three summers, and then the year that she was aging out, the year that she was, we call it graduation, um, something happened. Now, we have an area called dress-up, where people from church give us all kinds of costumes, prom dresses, military outfits, uh, we had a fireman's outfit, wedding dresses, and the kids just get to put different clothes on, and they get to play act during the day. Becky, you're probably watching this, and I know you're going to hate this, so put your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 la. Becky wore the wedding dress every day, and she married every boy in camp. (laughs) One of our volunteers, Shirley, saw Becky in the wedding dress and said, God, if there's anything I can do to make that happen, let me know. And God called Shirley to be Becky's foster mom. And Becky came into our church. She came into my neighborhood. She came into our lives. 
And uh, 13 years later, I saw the fulfillment of that three-second prayer at camp as I got to do Becky's wedding. Kimmy was another little girl that came to our camp. Now, there are boys that come to our camp, okay? But boys don't want anybody showing their picture up that they, you know, went through something bad. So, uh, so you, got, you, got our, you got my three girls here. Uh, when Kimmy came to camp, she didn't show any signs of, of childhood trauma. Most kids that come to camp will act out their trauma. They'll act out their survival skill. If they had to run away to stay alive, they'll run away from you at camp. If they were starved in their home, they will hoard food. They will put food in their pockets just so they don't have to go hungry. Kimmy didn't show any of that. She was the kid, she was the kid all the female counselors wanted. And then she went through her few years of camp, and then we didn't have a mentoring program at the time, so we didn't hear from her until she turned 16, and she decided to come back and serve on our team staff, teen staff. So our first day of camp, we were grilling out, and Kimmy got her plate of food, and she came and sat by me, and I said, Kimmy, I got to know, what are you thinking? I mean, you were here as a little kid, now you're here as a teenager. What's going on in your mind? And I watched her eyes get all red, and she put her food down, and she walked away from me. Now, we have rules at camp, boys with the men, girls with the, with the ladies. And so one of our support staff went after Kimmy to be sure she was all right. Kimmy wrote me a letter and gave it to me that night. And she said, it wasn't anything you said that made me cry. As I sat there, I realized that all my happy childhood memories happened here. Think of your happy childhood memories. You know, Disney World, birthday presents, all that stuff. When Kimmy came to our first year at camp, when we had the birthday party, that was a moment that changed her life because her uncle, three weeks later, forgot to celebrate her birthday. And when we celebrated her birthday at camp, it was like God himself saying, I didn't forget about you, Kimmy. But the other thing she told us when she came back at 16 was that um, her, 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 her movement into foster care was because her baby brother drowned in a bucket of water while her pedophile uncle was babysitting. Social services came in. The other four kids went right into foster care. Her older brother, James, was killed in a car accident while he was in foster care. Her middle brother, Ricky, was institutionalized. And she had one brother left, her younger brother, Timmy. And her and Timmy were placed with an abusive uncle. But if she reported his abuse, they would take her out of the home, and she would lose her last family connection. So she put up with that guy's abuse year after year after year. And for 51 weeks a year, she was worthless and stupid. And one week a year, she was a child of the king. And that one week changed Kimmy's life. Uh, she uh, met a nice young man at church, got married, had a baby, and started her own camp. So now Kimmy is our first former camper who was a director in Lockport, Illinois. Let me tell you the story of Lexi. Uh, Lexi was from our camp in Lincoln, Nebraska, where they do a princess day. And on princess day, the girls got all dressed up in evening wear and jewelry. They got their hair done. They got to wear flowers. And a guy brought his Mustang convertible out to camp. So each one of the girls, in turn, got to do the princess wave while, while everyone cheers the princess. That moment changed Lexi's life. Lexi had a horrible upbringing. She was abused in her home of origin. She was abused in foster care. And she kept getting bounced back and forth. The goal of social services is reunification. They want the children to be in their homes. But her home was not a good one. She kept going back and forth between those two. 
And then finally, they terminated her mother's parental rights. She got adopted. She gets abused in the adopted home. She gets put back in foster care. And then she came to camp. And she had that, that awakening at, at camp where she knew that she was, she, was, she was born for purpose. She got adopted again after camp, abused again. That adoption fails. She goes back in foster care. And one of the judges got involved in her case. And he said, Lexi, have you ever had a positive experience in foster care? Yeah. I went to this camp. And my foster mom was a volunteer there. What's her name? The judge tracks her down from Lincoln, Nebraska to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, calls her on the phone and says, would you adopt Lexi? And she goes, in a heartbeat. So Lexi moves to South Dakota. Her and her mom start our very first camp in South Dakota. And I was visiting that camp when Lexi was turning 18. And I said, so what are you going to be doing, Lexi? You're 18. You can do anything you want. She goes, well, I want to go to ministry school, but we can't afford it. So I'm going to go to community college. And I remember walking away from that camp saying, yeah, community college is great, but she's called to ministry. Three weeks later, I'm at a ministry school in Griffin, Georgia. It was a statewide conference where I was presenting royal family to the people in Georgia. And uh, I had my table in my booth set up. Right behind my table was the cafe. Uh, pastor of the church was there, Randy Valamont. One of my major donors, Scott Larson, and Wes, the school administrator, are sitting at a table. And so I just walked around and I said, uh, Randy, what can I do to get one of, my, one of my campers here in your school? And he says, what's your story? I told him the princess story. He tears up. He says, uh, you know, I was adopted. And Randy starts telling me how he got adopted by Christian parents, and that started his redemption. And he says, I'll tell you what, John. That little girl comes to my school, I'll give $1,000 toward her tuition. My donor goes, I'll match that, plus I'll fly her here on my airline points. The school administrator goes, we got that scholarship from Southeastern. Randy goes, let's give that to Lexi. So in five minutes, this girl got a four-year free ride scholarship to a ministry school. She's praying about 2,500 miles away. School started Monday. It was Saturday. And I'm like, guys, I'm just talking here. I'm just talking. And Randy goes, well, you better get on the phone, John. You better call uh, Lexi's mom and tell her uh, what just happened here, and then tell her this. If Lexi can't get home for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for summer, she is going to live in my house, and she is going to be my daughter for the next four years. That's a picture of Lexi graduating Bible college. If you look at the problem, it's too big. But if we can look at the picture of these Three girls. Next slide. Little girls that were familyless, and now they're part of the family of God. They're part of real families because somebody made a difference in their lives. Somebody cared to start a summer camp for foster kids, and then they became part of the church. When I say the problem is too big, get this. In 2019, 9,598 foster kids were emancipated from the system with nowhere to go. 9,598 teenagers released, no family, no church, no job prospects, homelessness, and couch surfing. You can make a difference to one child. You can't make a difference to 9,000, but you can make a difference to one. 
It's the starfish story that you hear all the time where these starfish are washed up on shore and this little kid is throwing these starfish in and a guy comes up and he's looking at these tens of thousands of starfish and he tells the kid, what difference do you think you're going to make? And he goes, it'll make a difference to this one. And that's what we find in royal family. If we can just make a difference to one child and then see what God's going to do with that. I doubt anybody in here, the, the sound of my voice is going to be a leader of a nation. I, I, I doubt that anybody in here is going to one day write five books that will someday be canonized, and you're probably not going to place 200,000 children. But there may be something you can do for a Becky or a Kimmy or a Lexi or a Matthew and Joe. You're not too young and you're not too old. Romans 8, 14 and 15 says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy God. There's a big difference between a father and a daddy, isn't there? Yeah, they're Daddy God. This unending spiraling of redemption that has been going on for as long as mankind has been on the planet is initiated by and continued by the spirit of a loving father gifting his children for their inheritance. It is seeded by him, but it is cultivated by us. It may be cloaked by abuse, neglect, and abandonment, and it is unveiled by us. Children by someone else trampled down by the church Lift it up. And I pray for you as pastor comes. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to share your love for the disenfranchised. Uh, Father, you are speaking to hearts right now about what it is you are calling them to do. And Father, I pray that you would, um, that you would open the eyes of their heart and that they would know exactly what their place is in the kingdom. Father, you have gifted everyone in here for purpose. It may not be this, but it's something. So touch their hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.